Jesus said, This is the first and greatest commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love others as you love yourself. So the question is, do you love? I mean, do you really live the definition of love? Are you patient? Are you kind? Do you celebrate in the blessings of others? Are you humble? Have you died to self? Are you slow to anger? Do you keep no record of wrongs? Do you always protect? Always trust? Always hope? Always persevere? This is what it means to love, the way God intended. So the question remains, do you love? So that is the question we need to answer. Good morning. If you're new, they always clap here. We love each other, okay? Um, That question you just saw in the video, that's the one I want to try to answer today. Do you, do I love? Sounds pretty cliche, doesn't it? But I think it's a huge question. Um, seems kind of random, but when I was growing up as a kid, and by the way, I did finish growing up, mind you, um, my favorite comic strip to read in the newspaper was Peanuts. Y'all remember Peanuts? Charlie Brown, Linus with his blanket, Lucy Schroeder, Peppermint Patty, Pigpen. Um, if you remember in the Peanuts comic strips, Lucy, the loudmouth, opinionated brunette, had a crush on Schroeder. Remember this? She was always trying to get him to do something or say something to show that he loved her. She was, and she wasn't feeling the love, really. She never really got any response back. But one particular day, Schroeder's plunking out Beethoven's fifth movement or something like that on the piano. Lucy's kind of leaning on the baby grand piano on the other side, and she's just wanting something from him. So she finally says, Schroeder, do you even know what love is? Schroeder plays a few more notes, and then he looks up into space and says, love a noun, the act of caring for, serving, and sacrificing generously for another person. But he goes back to playing the piano. In the last frame of the comic strip, Lucy's now looking at you, the reader, and saying, on paper, he's fantastic. (laughs) Ladies, and know any guys that are on paper fantastic? Don't answer that question. It's true, isn't it? We know what that phrase means. On paper means, theoretically, statistically, On paper, the numbers seem to show that this would be reality, but not really in real life. That's what Lucy was saying. And by the way, you and I both use that phrase, don't we? Usually, I use it in terms of sports teams, right? At the beginning of a season, you say, on paper, we should win it all. In fact, can I just say it out loud right here? The last three seasons, on paper, the Detroit Tigers should have won the World Series all three last week. Am I right about that? Absolutely. You look at the starting lineup. Cabrera and Fielder, and oh my gosh, and the starting rotation. But you know what happened? I mean, the Tigers made it to postseason, but somehow, by the time the World Series rolled around, a lesser talented team that wasn't as good on paper ended up winning. Am I right about this? Now, all I'm simply saying is this is what life's about. You've got the stats over here, you've got the theory over here, you've got the numbers, you've got the information, but then you've got reality. And sometimes there's just a big gap between the two. 
may I just speak for me? On paper, I'm fantastic. You can write that down, by the way. I've memorized all the right verses. John 3, 16, Romans chapter 8, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 13, love chapter. Come on, we've got them, don't we, babe? We got them on a plaque on our wall. Some of us got them on the bumper of our car. On paper in America, we are fantastic. But that's just it. Somehow, we thought the paper was the deal. We've never said out loud, but somehow it just came down to something I know. I've got data up here that's all right. And we know better. We even use that phrase. We know better. But then we do this instead of that. And so, when outsiders were polled in America, and by outsider I mean, may I just say it? People that were non-churched, non-Christian, secular, pagan, humanistic, whatever you want to say, atheistic, people that looked out from the outside in at people who attended church, and they were asked to describe us. They said things like, we are narrow-minded, homophobic, uneducated, uncaring, judgmental, and hypocritical. Other than that, we're doing fine. Now, you and I both know that's not every one of us. In fact, that's probably a fraction. The vast majority of people that are here today that are attending churches across the world are actually good people. But there's a few that seem to speak for all of us. Have you noticed this? And we get this reputation. And quite frankly, I think the world, if they were to peer in at us and give us an evaluation, they would say, on paper, you're great. But after Sunday, Monday comes, and then Tuesday, and then Wednesday, what do we do between Sundays? Well, uh, I don't know. Years ago, there was a young student that graduated from law school in London. He was far away from home, but he, he was able to, to, to get to London, get scholarship, and he went through law school. He decided he wanted to practice law with impoverished people, people from a lower socioeconomic status. And in his final year of law school, he got very intrigued with comparative religions, and in particular, Christian faith. He wasn't a Christian, but he thought this seemed intriguing. He loved the teachings of Christ. And so he decided, after he graduated, he would find a country in southern Africa where he could help the poor legally, but then also room with a Christian family, kind of bored with them. And he thought, this is a double win. I can get to do what I want to do, and then I can also see the Christian life in action day to day to day. Well, he went down there and did just that, but he left early and very disappointed. It wasn't that the family he lived with was evil or wicked. It was just that they, they didn't really practice what they preached. They were uncaring. They were totally into themselves. Outside of Sunday, they didn't serve anybody. They had their own agenda. They were totally fine with that racial segregation thing. And in the end, this young, young career professional left and went back to his homeland in India. You know him. His name is Mahatma Gandhi. Later embraced Hinduism and led a revolution in India in the 1940s. But when he left Africa, he was famous for saying this statement. I love your Christ, but you Christians are not like him. Wow. Wow. And so quite frankly, as I set up the case for what I want to talk about today, what I'm simply saying is this. I just wonder if the number one reason more people don't become Christians are the Christians. It's awfully quiet in here, I've noticed, okay? So, now this is not an indictment. Listen, I think we're really trying to do it here. I really do. But by and large, the image or the brand of Christian life is not really good right now. Am I safe to say that in America? Our brand isn't really good. 
somehow people have gotten the wrong idea about these people that follow this caring, loving Savior. So I want to take a few minutes and really go after this. And I want to leave you with five big ideas that you can walk out of here that where you actually do, not just in theory, not just on paper, this life we're talking about. Okay? Fair enough? If you brought your Bibles, I want you to grab them. Open them up to Romans chapter 13. It's in the New Testament. In fact, if you're new to church or you just don't have your Bible, welcome. Glad you guys are here. We're going to put this passage up on the screen so you can read along with me as I read it. In fact, I'm going to read it from the screen. But um, this is a passage that was written by a man named Paul, Paul the Apostle, 2,000 years ago. And he was writing from Asia Minor to Rome, the Christians who were living in Rome, which was the capital of the world at that time. Well, they had fallen into the same trap we'd fallen into. They'd kind of gotten their faith into a routine, pretty manageable routine, that they could pull off with or without God's help, thank you very much. And now they were kind of in a stupor, cruise control, autopilot, if you will. So let's read together, starting with verse 11, all the way down to 14. Let's see what Paul says to them, words that he may say to us today. He says in verse 11, but make sure that you don't get so absorbed and exhausted in taking care of all your day-to-day obligations that you lose track of the time and you doze off, meaning spiritually, oblivious to God. The night is about over and the dawn is about to break. Be up and awake to what God is doing. God is putting the finishing touches on the salvation work he began when we first believed. We can't afford To waste a minute, we must not squander these precious daylight hours in sleeping around, in dissipation, in bickering, and grabbing everything in sight. Now look at this last verse. Get out of bed and get dressed. Does it not sound like a parent to a child, to a teen? Get out of bed and get dressed. I love that. In other words, get ready. Don't loiter and linger, waiting until the very last minute. Dress yourselves in Christ. I repeat, dress yourselves in Christ and be up and about. Now, I'm guessing you sense, like I do, a great sense of urgency in those words. As he's wrapping up this great letter to Rome, it was, this was the third to the last chapter, Paul's finally saying, Romans, hello, wake up. And not just wake up, the, the, the day is at hand. But then notice he said, get up and get dressed Clothe yourselves in Christ. Interesting. It's almost as though he's saying, I know he's inside of you. Thank you. I don't see him on the outside. Hello. How often is that true about my life? Don't answer. (laughs) I look in the mirror some days, and on my worst days, I do not draw anybody to Jesus. Do you have days like that too? Please somebody identify with me. I am repulsive. Ask my wife. I am repulsive sometimes, okay? I'm just kidding. Um, My humanity is greater than my divinity. The, The imperfect warts and wrinkles of my life are far more visible than the, than the glory that God, I think, put inside of me when I ask him in. So many of you in this room today, not all, but many of you, at one point in your past, bowed your knee and you said, Jesus, come into my life. I want to belong to you. I want to be a Christ follower. I want to be a Christian. The word Christian means little Christ. We get up and somewhere along the way, he's in there, but we need Paul to say to us, put him on. Put him on. I know he's in there, but you need to let him out. Clothe yourself. Let the world see it. 
So what does that mean? Well, again, I'm asking, do you love? Somehow Paul was insinuated there's something we need to do that makes him visible on the outside. And because I think it's far too often theory or merely bumper stickers on our car, I know your car is saved, but are you? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, I want to give you today, I don't know where that came from. I want to give you today five phrases, phrases that every one of you are familiar with. You use them in day-to-day life that I think indicate what it means to put on or clothe ourselves in Christ. Now, you've all heard another phrase before I get into these five that um, I think I can apply to this situation. Ladies, some of you are famous for this. You stand in front of a closet full of clothes and you say, I can't find a thing. Uh Uh-huh, you've heard it too. You know you're not telling the truth. There's a ton of stuff in there. But somehow all the stuff in the closet, you're not quite sure what to pick. And that's what happens. We got all these verses in the closet. I can't find a thing to wear. So Monday morning is a lot harder than Sunday morning. Okay, fast your seatbelts. Five phrases, here we go. Phrase number one. I think clothing ourselves in Christ, first of all, means that we need to wear the pants in the relationships of our lives. We need to wear the pants in the relationships of our lives. I know this sounds very pithy, but listen to me. You know what that phrase means, don't you? When you talk about a family and you say, well, she wears the pants in that family, or we talk about a, 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 you know, colleagues at work, well, he wears the pants in that relationship, all we're simply talking about is that person is the person that seems to own it. It's not about power, but it's more about they take responsibility. They're the person you want to go to and talk to. They're the person that um, seems to take initiative and get the job done. So how did Jesus demonstrate this? Well, first of all, may I say the obvious? Boy, did he wear the pants in his relationship with us. First of all, he was God Almighty, left the safety and comfort of heaven, came to this big blue marble in space, which wasn't too comfortable, thank you very much, starts in a manger... And all through his life, he's taken initiative, doing stuff that we didn't even know needed to be done. Scripture says, while we were still sinners, Christ came and died for us. I'd say that's wearing the pants. In fact, Jesus starts his three-and-a-half-year earthly ministry, not with billboards and websites, but going into the wilderness for 40 days. I want you just to think about that for a minute. He he launches his public ministry by going into the wilderness. He's in the desert for 40 days fasting. Doctors tell us that's about as long as you can go without eating food. He's praying and fasting, spending time with his heavenly father, so internally he's fully ready to live out this calling when he gets started. I'm saying he's wearing the pants. And then halfway through his ministry, he predicts to his disciples that he's going to have to go to Jerusalem and die. And Simon Peter says, no, 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 you will never let that happen. And Jesus looks right at him and says, get thee behind me, Satan. That'll ruin your day if Jesus said that to you. But listen to me. He's simply saying, Peter, I know you mean well when you say we won't let you go through that pain. But you understand, I've got to do it. You can't do it yourself. I have to go to the cross. But I'm just saying Jesus was very aware that there was never a moment he could just kind of wing it, just kind of do cruise control and let the... He was was always, always, always in a place of proactive initiative. He wore the pants in every interaction he had. And then finally, can I just say it? The cross. We didn't even know we needed a cross. In the same way that Steve Jobs told us we need an iPhone and now we can't live without the iPhone. (laughs) Pardon me. Jesus said, you don't even know this but you need someone to die for you because you deserve death. So I'll come 
while you're still completely ignorant of this, take care of your problem, then all you have to do is receive my gift. I'd say he's wearing the pants in this thing. So can I give you practical application? I think this means in our interactions with others, we need to assume the role of the host, not the guest, with people. Can I say that again? We need to assume the role of the host, not the guest. That means not that we're loudmouth, not that we're always talking, not that we're overpowering anybody. In fact, quite the opposite. A good host may do a lot of listening. Hmm? If you come to my house, knock on my door, or ring my doorbell, and I'm a good host, I'll say, come on in. How you doing? I'll try to make some connection. Maybe we'll make a joke, but we'll find some common ground. I'll say, can I take your coat? Would you like some iced tea? Have a seat. In fact, you know what I've discovered? I think good hosts initiate, connect, provide, and direct. It's exactly what Jesus did. Miracles and no miracles. When he interacts with people, he's initiating, connecting, providing, and directing. Husbands, dads, do you do this for your wife and your kids? Ladies, do you do this with the interactions you have in your community, your family? Again, it doesn't mean you're overpowering. It just means you take the first step. You do what needs to get done to get the job done. And sometimes you are, you are putting yourself in a place of vulnerability because you may, they may not respond. Let me illustrate. Many of you in this room may have read some of the books that Donald Miller has written. My favorite book he wrote was a book called Blue Light Jazz. He wrote that, I don't know, 10 years ago. It's a great book, but in this book he talks about his life as a college student. He attended Reed College in the Pacific Northwest. If you never heard of Reed, Reed for several years in a row was voted the most secular college campus in America, meaning the most without God campus that you can imagine. In fact, there was one, only one Christian club on the whole campus. It had four people in it. Don Miller said, I think the four of us made up the entire Christian population on the college campus. And it was a school of, it was an island of misfit toys, if you will. And he said every spring, they would have a week of partying, party hardy. It was called Ren Fair. And the students would party so hard, I mean, dr- drunk, wasted, token, smoking, you name it, that at the beginning of the week, the hospital would send out several ambulances just to take the, they knew they were going to have some unconscious students they would have to take into the hospital. That's how bad it was. And so weeks before this Ren Fair party week, the Christians got together in their club and they said, what should we do that week? And up to that point, every year they'd kind of resorted to, let's go out two by two, and here's a track, Jesus loves you, here's a track, Jesus loves you, here's a track, and that wasn't going over very well. People really didn't want any tracks when they're holding a Michelob in the other hand. So finally, half-jokingly, one of the college students says, well, there's going to be a lot of sinning going on. Why don't we set up a confession booth? And everybody laughed until the leader of the group said, that's it. That's exactly what we're going to do. Everybody said, no, 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 we were just joking. We were just joking. He said, no, I'm serious. We're going to set up a confession booth, but we're going to reverse it. And here's what they decided to do. They set up this booth. It was a small tent-like booth, and there was a wall, just like a Catholic confessional, where the priest would be on one side and the confessor would be on the other. But as the students would kind of wander in with a beer and a cigarette or whatever, and they'd sit down, one of these Christian students would be on the other side. And inevitably, the wasted student would start and say, you want me to start confessing my sins to you? The Christian would respond back, no, 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 no. Actually, if you'll just sit for a moment, We'd like to start. And in that moment, they would say something like this. I claim to be a follower of Christ, but I need to confess to you, I have not lived this life very well. 
you obviously have not been drawn to Jesus because of me. We've not cared for the poor like we're supposed to. We've been gay haters, judgmental, critical. We've been this, we've been that. They would go on and very gently after each statement, they would say, would you forgive us for this? Would you forgive us for this? Well, Donald Miller said you wouldn't believe the responses they got. It was everything from this, the other student would go, okay, shut up, that's fine, that's, just, just be quiet. It was awkward. To some students would go, oh my gosh, you think that's bad? Let me tell you what I did, you know? <laughs> to many of them saying in tears, wow, man, I forgive you, but I'm so glad you brought this up. And then they would just dump how they had had this rift with God because they saw some Christians not living very Christ-like and they all of a sudden had this divide. You know this happens all the time, don't you? Even if it's wrong, even if they have no excuse for doing this, people are kept away from God because of us screwing up our life. You know that. I'll just speak for me. I do this. And so for them at that campus, putting the pants on meant we're gonna do this confession booth and we're gonna start first. They led so many people to Christ that week. In fact, the line got so long for the confession booth, they had to set up a picnic table right next to it. There were two lines of students wanting to go to the confessional, just wanting to hear someone say, I'm not doing very well. Because it freed them up to say, I'm not either. Let me tell you what baggage I've got. How liberating the world would be if we just started by saying, I'll wear the pants in this relationship and say, I'm not doing so well, but I want to. And by God's grace, I'll do better. I'm telling you, that's better than on paper, don't you think? Number two, the second statement of what it means to put on Christ is we need to give them the shirt off our back. We need to give them the shirt off our back. Now, you all have heard this phrase before, haven't you? Whenever someone uses this phrase, oh, he'll give you the shirt off his back, what it generally means is there's a spirit of generosity. This is a person that will go beyond the call of duty, over and above the call of duty. They're generous, they're liberal, they'll give, give, give. Their life is not marked by a job description where they do the bare minimum, but they seem to find ways in their imagination to do the maximum. Jesus talked about this, remember? He said, and when someone strikes you on one cheek, remember what he said? Turn and say, oh, you missed this one. When someone asks you to walk a mile, say, oh, I'll go too. Don't you think that would start a conversation? And when someone takes your coat Offer them your shirt as well. I actually think this phrase, give them the shirt off your back, came from that Bible verse right there. Oh, you want the coat? Well, I've got a great shirt. Would you like the shirt? Now, this is just odd, but that's what Jesus wanted. He wanted us to be a little different, a little odd, that we were never marked by doing the bare minimum. We were never living lives like we felt like we're the victim of some system that's taxing us too much. And by the way, I feel that way. I feel like the federal... I'm, do we not feel, almost everyone is, to some degree, a victim of a big system? And so we do hold on to whatever we got. This is mine. Well, that's not giving the shirt off the back. That's holding on to the shirt I got on my back. And by the way, this one too, I want that one. And so Jesus not only talks about it, he models it. There were times, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there were times when Jesus spent the entire night, after a full day of ministry, the entire night just praying over sick people. In Mark chapter 1, it says the whole town gathered at Simon Peter's door. The whole town. Picture this. Whole town of Michi uh, Plymouth, Michigan, gathering. And Jesus, into the night, was laying hands on lepers and blind people and sick people and lame people and just healing them. 
You'd think he could have said at 10 o'clock, hey, listen, I got to go. I got to get my beard rest. I'm done. He didn't. And then the classic. Do you remember the Last Supper? One of the disciples booked the upper room for them to participate in this last Passover feast together. But whoever booked the room forgot to book the servant at the door that would wash all the feet. They always washed feet before they partook of Passover just to have be clean. Well, somebody forgot the, uh, to book the servant. Interestingly, all through the dinner, they're probably mumbling to each other, who forgot, who forgot, who forgot? But nobody's volunteering for the job? So Jesus stands up at some point, I don't know when exactly, takes off his robe, strips down to the, a piece around his waist so he looked the part of a servant and takes a basin and a towel and one by one just washes the dirty, stinky feet of men. Ugh. It was so awkward that Peter said, no, no, you can't do me. But what I'm saying is Jesus was just saying, listen, a talk on service right now or a sermon on generosity won't do the trick. I'm going, to, I'm going to give you the shirt off of my back. I'm about to go to the cross, but the last act I participate in before I go to the cross, I'm going to wash your feet. Wow. Now, how does this look? How do we put on this Christ? Well, may I just give you a snapshot? One of my dearest friends is a guy named Colin Sewell. I don't know if you've heard of Colin. He's not really famous, but he is one of the top 10 Ford dealers in the country. He lives in Midland, Odessa, Texas. Sells bunches of cars every year. I know why he does. He practices this. He gives the shirt off his back every day. In fact, one of the reasons I condone him, he gives, he gives away my book to all the people that buy his cars. But Colin Sewell, uh, about four or five years ago, do you all remember going through that horrible economic recession we all went through? Some of you didn't make it out with your job. Colin steps up at the very beginning. He kind of saw it coming. And he said, you guys have done some figuring. I think I found a way that we won't have to lay anybody off. And Colin was the first one to take a big pay cut as the president, the CEO of his dealership. And he said, if every one of you will just take a little bit of a pay cut, I've got it figured out. No one will ever be in jeopardy of their job. We'll keep everybody. And they did it. Everybody pitched in. It was all for one and one for all. Nobody lost their jobs. Anybody say amen to that? Now, as I talk to different team members, I notice this is the norm for Colin. In fact, Andrew is a guy I met. Andrew said, Tim, a few years ago, I went through a horrible divorce. I was at the lowest point of my life. He said, I had to move out of a nice home into a lower income apartment. I was embarrassed. It was a bad part of town. And as he said, as I pulled up my truck into this apartment complex, I looked up to be greeted by dozens of my fellow employees singing singing to me and then Colin the CEO walks up and says Andrew it's Christmas in February and he motions for a big truck to pull up evidently everybody at the company had donated all the furniture they could beds and sofas and chairs and refrigerators and china and dishes and you name it toilet paper everything <laughs> in fact we found out later what wasn't donated colin just checked it off he bought it they fully furnished his apartment he had nothing the day before and then they made a barbecue for him that night andrew said to me you think i'm loyal to this man he gives a shirt off his back 
In fact, many of the salesmen at this Ford dealership will say, this is very common for Colin. He'll be up in his office in his suit and tie, and maybe somebody will buy an F-150 right five minutes before closing time, so I'm scrambling to get the paperwork done. He said, I'll see Colin. Running down the hall in his suit and tie, grabbing a rag so he can wipe down the truck, make sure it's looking really good so the salesman wouldn't have to do it. Of course they love him. But here's what I'm saying to you. This shouldn't be an odd story. This, you, you should be able to say, I got a thousand stories like that. If we did what we're supposed to do, these little stories would be sprinkled throughout every day of our life. Colin would be a normal person, not an abnormal person. But I'm telling you, I think Jesus was saying, you don't have to speak well. You don't have to have a high IQ. Thank you. You don't have to be very gifted. You just need to wear the pants Give them the shirt off your back. Let me do number three. The third thing we have to do if we're going to put on Christ is we need to throw our cap over the wall. You need to throw your cap over the wall. Now, this is a phrase that's a little less popular than the other one, so let me explain it. This phrase has actually been around a little over 50 years. It became popular in the early 60s when John F. Kennedy was our president. He told the story of what he did and how he made and kept commitments, commitments that required courage during his presidency. He said, when I was growing up, this is Jack Kennedy, when I was growing up, my grandpa very often would walk me to school. I had my Catholic uniform on, my little cap, and Papa would hold my hand and we would walk down the sidewalk. And they lived in a very wealthy neighborhood, you know the Kennedys, and so there were a lot of mansions that were walking by. And the mansions all had these big six or seven foot high fences around them. And so they would imagine what was on the other side of these fences. And John Kennedy said, I would often say, Pop, Pop, what do you think's on the other side of that fence? Or what do you think's on the other side of that fence? Is it a swimming pool? Do they have pets? What's over there? And he said, finally, one day, my grandpa grabbed my hat right off my head, threw it over the fence and said, now you gotta go to find out what's on the other side of that wall. Well, this poor little kid goes, what? He goes, yeah, you gotta climb that fence and find out. Now, he was teaching him a lesson. And this poor little elementary school kid in his Catholic uniform climbed up over the wall, got to the other side, grabbed his hat, but took a great look around. Saw a swimming pool and a couple of dogs and got back over and told him everything was on the other side. But from that point on, it was a game. A game that he and his grandpa would play that simply signified this. Throwing the cap over the wall represents the act that you perform that will help you keep a commitment that you know you need to make. In other words, when he threw his cap over the wall, it forced him to see what was on the other side. He had to go get his hat. And he said, as an adult, there were several times I did things that would hold me accountable, getting people involved or reporting this or doing that. But it was, it was the acts that you performed to make sure that what you knew better to do but often would fail to do later, you actually followed through and finished. This is where I think our Christian life usually falls or fails. Let me just speak for me. I make great commitments in January and a resolution. I'm going to diet more, lose weight, whatever. And then by March, I'm not really doing it. I need to throw my cap over the wall. I need to do something that will ensure that I'm following through and finishing that commitment I started. So, Debbie Janicki learned this from a total stranger some time ago. Debbie is a mother and a grandmother. 
She's a dear friend of mine. She said we were running through the airport to gate A28 and we were late for our flight. She said it was me, my daughter, my son-in-law, and my granddaughter. So we had three generations running down the concourse. She said we finally got to the gate five minutes before they were going to close the door. And she said we looked down to notice that my son-in-law had completely broken his sandal. I mean, the, the, the straps were just were off. Well, they said it didn't seem like a big deal, except at that point, the Delta agent said, oh, I'm so sorry, he can't get on the plane. You've got to have two pairs, you've got to have two shoes on. You wouldn't, they wouldn't allow him to get on the plane without both shoes. I didn't realize that was a rule, and Debbie said, I didn't either. And so they started arguing at the gate, we've got to get on, we can't miss this flight. We don't have time to go buy another pair of shoes at some airport store. So they were bickering back and forth. When suddenly, out of nowhere, this stranger walks up and says, excuse me, I know it's none of my business, but I couldn't help but over here, you're, you're having a problem here. What, what, what can I do to help? Debbie said, well, it is none of your business, but quite frankly, here's what's going on. And so she explained the FFA and the strap and the sandal and the rule, and the man didn't even let her finish. He said, oh, that's not a big problem at all. He said, what size shoe do you wear? He said, nine. I wear nine. He took, this guy's in a nice suit with a briefcase, $400 pair of shoes, Nordstrom shoes. Took them off, handed them over, said, see if they fit, see if they fit. Go, go try them on. He was so excited when the son-in-law tried them on, and they fit. Son-in-law, the daughter, and the granddaughter get on. Debbie waits and hugs this man and says, you didn't have to do that. Why? Why did you do that? And the man said, I'll be honest with you. He said, a year ago, I wouldn't have done it. But he said, I made a commitment this year, and I'm holding myself accountable. If I ever meet someone, and they have a need that I can meet, I will just stop whatever I'm doing. And if I'm able to meet it, I'll meet it. I didn't have an extra pair of shoes, but I did have my pair of shoes. So I figured, I'm going to give him my pair of shoes. The son-in-law walked on with his shoes. This man walked sock-footed out to his car. That's better than on paper, don't you think? That's better than on paper. And you know what? Debbie and her family will always remember that godly man, that Christ follower, who gave up his nice shoes so they could make their flight. All I'm saying is, These are ordinary people. You'll never read about them. You'll never hear them on CNN. You'll never read about them in the newspaper. But this is the kind of way it looks. It's it's throwing your cap over the wall is you ensuring that the I know better actually happens better. That's all I'm saying. Okay, very quickly, two more. The fourth phrase I want to give you that, that I think illustrates how to put on Christ is you need to see through their glasses. Meaning, and you've all used this phrase, when you say, I saw it through their glasses or I saw it through the lenses, I, I, I stepped into their shoes, if you will. It means you're empathizing with another person. You see someone out there and you actually have enough margins in your calendar that you can feel what they feel. See life through their eyes. And because you're able to do that, your response is far more relevant because you're feeling and you're seeing. You're not guessing about what to do. You're not saying, pray for you, bye. You're actually doing something that would meet a need because, because you feel what they feel. Now, how did Jesus do this? Oh my gosh, he did this brilliantly. Do you remember when Jesus showed up four days late to Lazarus' funeral? It was one of his closest friends. He lived in Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. Jesus loved Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And he shows up and Lazarus is dead. People are weeping. And Jesus knew darn well he's about to raise him from the dead. Instead of going, hold it, stop crying. I'm about to raise him from the dead. Remember what he did? Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. 
Why did he weep? He did not have to weep. He's God. He knows the end of the story. And it's a really good ending. He weeps because he's feeling the despair and the hurt and the pain and the sadness that these people are feeling. Has nothing to do with the outcome. God's going to fix it all in the end. He's feeling in the moment. Even when you know you can help that person over there, you're feeling with them right now. You don't skip the pain to get to the good part. There were a number of times Jesus stood on a hill overlooking the city of Jerusalem. And as God Almighty, who had the answer, he would weep over Jerusalem. Interesting, isn't it? Almighty God, who knew every answer here, who was the answer, still cries. In fact, one of the descriptions of Jesus outside the scripture, it was, it was a historian that wrote, um, Jesus was a, he said, this is interesting, he said Jesus was a handsome man with chestnut colored hair, perfect, perfectly symmetrical face. And the next thing he said is, he's been known to weep often in the presence of other men. Interesting. He felt what we feel. Now, this is not a newsflash. You know what I'm saying. How you doing with this one? I think part of putting on Christ is we push ourselves to pause long enough to actually empathize and feel with others. And sometimes this takes practice. You're going to have to do some things different to practice doing this. Here's what I mean. Years ago, I was mentoring a young pastor named John Burke. John's a dear friend. John had just finished seminary. He was about to go on staff at his very first church, but he said, Tim, I need to confess to you. I have never really gotten good at sharing my faith with outsiders. About, I've never gotten good at communicating Jesus to people that don't know Jesus. And I said, how come? You're a pastor. He said, well, quite frankly, I, I, I've always been around church folks. He said, I mean, I grew up in church. I started going to church nine months before I was born. You know what he's talking about? And, and I just have always been around church. Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, all, every time the church had its doors open, we're at church. And he said, I've never really been outside to, to be with people who had addictive behavior or this or that or whatever. And I said, John, we got to do something. And let me tell you what we did that John has practiced since that time just to keep him straight. He and I went to a shopping mall the next Saturday morning, but it wasn't to shop. We stood shoulder to shoulder, and we walked down that big wide aisle between all the stores, and we determined that every single person we would pass by, and there were dozens of shoppers, everybody we would pass by, we would look into their face, and if they looked up, we would smile. But as we looked at them, internally, we would be praying, God, what are they going through? What are they feeling right now? Now, I know that sounds like hocus pocus, but you know it's amazing how much the Holy Spirit will just whisper to you in those moments when you stop and listen long enough to get an answer. And by the way, you know this, don't you? You can just look at a face sometime and see what they're going through. And then we would quietly pray as we pass by them. Lord, those older people look very lonely. God, be their friend. And if they don't know you, reveal yourself to them. God, those teenagers look angry. God, give them peace. And if they don't know you, reveal yourself to them. Just quick, short prayers that we would pray over people. Let me tell you what this exercise did for me and for John. I would say, first of all, within 20 minutes, he and I, these two grown men, had tears streaming down our cheeks in the mall. People probably thought we had just got a bad deal at the shopping center or something. I don't know. But you know what it was? We were stopping long enough to look into the faces and realize everybody has a story. And they're all going through the story right now. Some people were panicked and rushed and trying to corral their children and 
We sat down about an hour later, just got a Diet Coke in the food court, and John said, Tim, I will never look at shoppers the same again. And what he meant by that was, I finally stopped, and I realized that what it means to share Jesus is just first to not say a thing, except to God. Instead of talking to people about God, why don't I talk to God about people? There's a thought. And when I was able to feel, now I suddenly am moved to my words aren't forced or nervous or whatever. It's more about scratching an itch and meeting a need rather than sharing some theology with them. Does this make sense to you? This is what it means to put on Jesus. We're fantastic on paper, aren't we? Father Damien is a Catholic priest, was a Catholic priest, lived during the 19th century. His story is amazing. You need to Google it and look it up. Father Damien. He decided he felt called to minister in Hawaii. <laughs> I wish I had that calling myself. No, I'm just kidding. He, he, he went to Molokai, Hawaii, no joke, because there was a leper colony there. And he wanted to spend the rest of his days serving these people with leprosy that often were untouchable. They, nobody talked to them, nobody touched them. Everybody's afraid that if I touch them, I'm going to get it myself. And so he spent years serving Mass and then getting to know the people, just talking and walking among them and so forth, working among them. And every Sunday he would serve Mass, and at the end of Mass he would always close with a statement. Now I want to remind you, you lepers know that God really, really loves you. And then he'd dismiss them. He did this for years. And if you were to talk to him his first few years, he would describe his ministry as okay. It was okay. The church wasn't full, but I was connecting. Everything happened Everything came to a breakthrough one particular Sunday when he stood up and served Mass. And at the end of the service, he changed his statement slightly. He said, now let me remind you, we lepers know that God really loves us. He had contracted leprosy himself just by being among them for years and years. Suddenly, it was a complete breakthrough. Everyone realized this guy isn't just some superior serving us little peons. He was among us so long, he was one of us. Breakthrough. Church was full. Great connections. Had a huge ministry in Molokai, Hawaii. We lepers know. One more statement. The last statement I'd make is simply this. We got to wear shoes that we want filled. We got to wear shoes that we want filled. Now, you've heard this phrase before, right? Usually it's often parents talking about their children. I want to wear shoes I want. I, that, and it simply means I need to set an example. I need to make sure I'm living it before I say it. And by the way, you get this one right away, don't you? As Christ followers, if we're going to put on Christ, it simply means before we ever say a word, before we ever work on our eloquent transitions, we're making sure that we're modeling the way. You know what I've noticed? This is so simple. If I will model the life I want for my children, or anybody else for that matter, it puts a megaphone in my hand so that my words are amplified. In fact, if I'm not modeling the way, I don't care what words I have. I just finished a book for parents called 12 Huge Mistakes Parents Can Avoid. And in that book, I put this statement. Children of all generations have never been very good at listening to their elders, but they have never failed to imitate them. Darn it. So you know that this whole faith thing is more caught than taught. You know that if you just quietly, quietly, quietly live the life, then your words, even two or three of them, mean incredible things because you've worn 
shoes that now can be filled. Our children, if you will, have something to follow. They know exactly what it looks like in the hard times and the easy times. So I found this page I want to read to you as I close. It's called Relaying the Truth. It's really a picture of exactly what I'm talking about now, about the shoes we want filled. It was late afternoon when the boat's engine sputtered, stalled, and refused to restart. Gallons of water surged into the craft as it pitched on sickening six-foot swells. The five jaggers had done all they knew to do, but it wasn't enough. An exciting fishing trip was now a thing of horror, and they were going under in the Atlantic Ocean. Grim-faced, George Jagger, his three sons, and his elderly father methodically tightened their buckles on their life jackets, tied themselves together with a rope, and slipped silently into a black and boiling Atlantic. George glanced at his watch as the boat finally disappeared, 6.30 p.m. Very little was said. It grew dark, and first one boy and then another swallowed too much salt water, gagged, and strangled on the brine as they fought to keep their heads up. The helpless father heard his sons one by one, and then his dad choke and drown. But George couldn't surrender. After eight nightmarish hours, he staggered onto the shore, still pulling the rope that bound him to the bodies of the other four. Pause and try to imagine the sight. I realized they were all dead, my three boys and my father, but I guess I didn't want to accept it, so I kept swimming all night long, he later told reporters. My youngest boy, Clifford, was the first to go. I had always taught our children not to fear death because it simply meant being with Jesus Christ. And before Cliff died, his dad heard him say, Dad, I'd rather be with Jesus than keep on fighting. In that vivid Atlantic memory, George Jagger had a chance to witness the impact of his 15 years as a father. The boys died quietly, with courage and dignity. Up to the very last minute, one by one, they modeled the truth passed on by their father. When under pressure, Stay calm and think. Even if death is near, keep under control. And so they did, and so they died. When the ultimate test was administered by an angry sea, they handed in perfect scores. I think this is moving to me because my two kids now are in their 20s. So I'm doing a lot of, I'm in an empty nester now. So I'm doing a lot of reflecting. Did they see what they needed to see? Did they hear what they needed to hear? Did they experience how to handle this and that situation? But I need to be thinking that every minute of the day. Am I modeling? And I'm not perfect, and neither are you. So it can be a pressurized thing, and I'm not intending that. 
but I want my kids, I guess I would want my kids to say, yeah, my dad spoke a lot and he wrote a lot of books and all that stuff. But when he was at home, he lived everything he said on the platform. What he said and what he did was exactly the same. So what am I saying to you? You want to put Jesus on and not just have him inside? You want this to be more than just paper? Here's the deal. Wear the pants in the relationships of your life. Give them the shirt right off your back. Throw your cap over the wall. Wear their glasses and see through their glasses. And then just make sure you wear the shoes that you want filled. My son is actually 21 now. I love Jonathan. I love Bethany and Jonathan. But Jonathan and I have had some great theological conversations of late. And he's moving to California. And... um, I was reminiscing with him recently about how when he was five years old, he made the marvelous discovery of his parents' closet. You know, the master bedroom closet with my suits and ties and shoes and everything else. Well, Jonathan loved putting on my clothes. And so, you know, he'd put on my sport coat and that was a robe to him at five years old. Um, Putting on my tie and my shirt was a really cool thing. He felt like he was a businessman. But at five years old, in the kindergarten, he really loved putting on my shoes. And so he put on these big old shoes, and they are big old shoes. I wear size 10. And, of course, he's this little five-year-old, so he's kind of strutting out. You know, he's slipping inside the shoes. His legs are moving, but the shoes are not. You know what I mean? And so he'd kind of strut out, and he'd go, Dad, your feet are huge. I can't believe how big your feet are. You know, yes, thank you, Jonathan, for the reminder. Um, But one day I took the liberty of telling him something. I said, Jonathan, you know, when you were two years old, we took you to the doctor, just like all parents do. And at two years old, the doctors are able to predict your height and weight as an adult. And I said, I don't know if you know this, but the doctors say you're going to be six foot two, 215 pounds. You're going to be bigger than me. You would have thought I just gave him a Lego set. This was amazing. He just, oh my gosh, oh, OMG, you know. We ran around the house for about an hour. I'm going to be bigger than dad. I'm going to be bigger than dad. I'm going to be bigger than dad. And I'll never forget watching him with my wife, Pam, and looking at him with a smile on my face, just thinking, That's my hope, son. That's my hope. Let's pray. God, we are people today who don't claim to be extraordinary, but we want to do this right. We want to hand in perfect scores in the end that our hearts were innocent and blameless, not fallless, but blameless. So right now, as I close in prayer, I pray Spirit of God, please help us do these five things I just said. Help us to clothe ourselves so people can see it on the outside, even if we're not saying a word. And Lord, if there's one of these, perhaps, that we're just maybe failing in, bring it back to remembrance this week. Give us laboratories to experiment in this week, clothing ourselves in Christ. Now, with your heads bowed, one more minute. Every weekend at Northridge, we have people that are here, that are here, that are rather new, or maybe you're back in church after a long time, or maybe you've been coming for a little while, but you would say, Tim, if I were honest, I don't know if I officially belong to Jesus. I mean, I've been in church before, but I've never invited him to come into my life. I've never stepped over the line of faith, and I don't know if I died tonight, I would go to heaven for sure. You know, the scripture says you can know that for sure. And it all starts with you simply inviting him to come in and take over. And then it's your accepting his work, not your work, to earn your way in.
If that's you today, right where you're seated, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. I'm not going to ask you to just walk forward or anything like that, but I want to just pray with you phrase by phrase. And if these phrases express the desire of your heart, you can say them in your own words, but I want you just to invite him in. Let's do it. Dear Lord, I do want to know you personally. I want to live the life we just talked about this morning. Lord, thank you for coming to the cross and dying for my sins. Thank you for the forgiveness of my sins. Right now, I invite you to come into my heart, into my life, to be my Lord and Savior. I trust your work at the cross. Thank you now for the gift of everlasting life with you. I now ask you to make me the person you really want me to be. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, very quickly, if you just prayed that prayer, I'm telling you, smartest decision you'll ever make. That's been my experience. I made some good decisions. My wife's a good decision. This is a good decision. So there's a program you got on the way in. Could you do something for me? If you just prayed that second prayer I just prayed, there's a little um, tear-off. In fact, it's a perforated part here. If you'll just fill that out, there's an orange ribbon at the bottom where you can check it that simply says, I prayed to receive Christ. On your way out, if you'll just put that in one of the boxes right beside the doors on the way out, then we'll be able to follow up and uh, resource you as you start your new relationship with Jesus. Actually, what I'd really love you to do, if you just pray with me at the information table in the lobby, we've started something called Starting Point that actually helps you get started in your walk with God. They'll tell you about getting involved with Starting Point and really getting off to a great start. Do you know I love hanging out with you? Happy Memorial Day. Have a great, great weekend. God bless you.